It is another blessed occasion we have, we have to assemble, to come together, to strive to offer the worship unto God today that would be pleasing and acceptable in His sight. It is easy to appreciate that men may so often wish to present what they would call worship, but yet according to the Scriptures, God has identified what constitutes that acceptable worship and how thankful we can be to be able to offer that unto Him this Sunday morning. Surely as we come to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we find so many passages and so many concepts that provide challenge and encouragement to us. Today, we'll give attention to the seventh chapter, verse number 12. May I invite you to turn to that location, and a moment ago, as Brother Colonel read that to us, it's a rather brief verse, but nonetheless one so very familiar to all of us. Maybe these introductory remarks will provide for you and me at least a platform upon which to consider the remainder of the lesson. One of the things about Christianity, the service to Jesus Christ our Lord, is the fact that it's so applicable. It is not merely resting in theological or abstract considerations in bound volumes in libraries somewhere. Found in the Word of God are those things that are applicable every day, things that challenge the way that you speak and myself, the things that cross your mind by way of thought as well as me. Everything about our life is under the banner and under guard and guide of the, that, that which Jesus Himself has taught. May I invite you to notice in Titus 2.14, as well as chapter 3, verse 14, there's a strong admonition that you and I, if we're pleasing to God, are to be those who themselves are given to good works. And we have to maintain those in our life and make sure to bring them forth as God would have it to be. It is to say, then in light of those things, it has been argued that one of the highest ethical statements ever set forth in the hearing of men is the lesson text that you and I have heard this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. I would invite you to think with me this morning as we at least reconsider that passage. It may well be one that you memorized at an early age, or it may at least one the sentiment of which you've used so often in life. But yet our Savior did present it, and it does have so much that you and I can consider even till today. For the first part of the lesson, then, let's cast a spotlight on the text itself. What is it about its context and the placement that is about that passage? And then we'll proceed to draw some applications following that in the lesson. First of all, I have put on the slide the actual rendering in the King James translation. And then beneath that in the English, in the, uh, English Standard Version as well. As you look at the way that they read, since we've already listened to the first one... That second one simply says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And it might be that you have yet a different translation on your lap, but as you hear what those things say, it's very difficult to misunderstand it. It's very difficult to miss the point our Master was making. Because of that, notice some of these additional statements. It might do us well to reflect on what was it that Jesus said that just preceded it and what was it that He said that just followed it. 
You may remember that as chapter 7, as you and I would call it open, Jesus made a dramatic statement about various kinds of judging. And of course that judging was based on things that are without the Word of God, but rather just opinions or speculations or matters along that line. And He said, whatever you judge, you should expect that that judgment will be brought back to you. Verses 5 and 6, He very strongly asserted, you can't possibly take the speck out of somebody else's eye when there's a beam or a plank in your own. It's ludicrous to even think that you could. And it's rather hypocritical at that. And yet as the Lord made those statements and how interesting they were for those of that day and how meaningful they still are for you and me, He then rather quickly in verses 7 and following pointed out that as we beseech God, we are to ask and seek and knock and rest assured that God will hear and that He will respond to those who are His children. We shouldn't expect to receive bountiful blessings from God if we're not living faithful to Him. Surely we know that He does bless all, both the wicked and the, those that are saints. But yet, isn't it true that there's a very special array of honors and covenant blessings, spiritual in character, attached to those who are His faithful children? You'll notice that takes us through verse 11. Following that, verse 12 is our lesson text, but notice then what follows it. In verses 13 and 14, immediately after this, Enter ye into the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. You and I have often noted that those two verses teach us many things among which are, but few are going to be saved, and that the way to eternal glory is very straight and it is very challenging. May I ask you to notice that it may well be in that context that it sheds a new perspective on verse number 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Is that always easy? I think we'd all agree that that offers its own set of personal challenges and difficulties, and yet the Lord said, straight's the way that leads to eternal glory, and few there be that find it. It may well be that in the way the context connects those together with us and for us, we can notice that this is all sometimes going to be very hard to do. But it doesn't change the fact the Lord said it. And it doesn't change the fact that in judgment we'll be judged based on passages and our keeping of a text like this one. It is with that in mind. Let's come to the bottom. And you may notice that also in verse 12, isn't it interesting, he said, all things whatsoever. He didn't say some things, most things. He said all things. And so immediately we notice apparently there are no exceptions to this. In other words, 2,000 years ago, under the banner of the new covenant... This better law, the superior one, the God of heaven through the person of His Son set forth this beautiful law of ethics. All things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. Now that does offer some interesting points of discussion and perhaps in the time allotted to us this morning, we'll think about some of those in passing. But it does seem that the context is a very direct one, doesn't it? First thing we might notice, and many throughout the ages, may I suggest to you, my studies led me to notice, many have tried to lessen the force of this verse. 
they've tried to apply conditions to it. They've tried to assert various and sundry subplots that the Lord surely had in mind. Point is, none of them are stated. And it seems to me exceedingly dangerous to try to make a law where the Lord didn't make one. This is what He said. We have to trust that this is what He meant, and He said what He meant. And so you'll notice at the bottom, one immediate thing is you don't treat them the way they treated you. There are many in our world who treat us in a rather mean way, an ugly way, or at least a way that's improper and inappropriate. The Lord did not say treat them the way they did treat you. He said you treat them the way you wish they would have treated you. There's a world of difference there. You'll notice then at that particular statement, if we just treated them the way they did treat us, that's nothing but retribution or vengeance. And didn't God say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, borrowing the words of Romans 12, 19. But not only that, isn't it true that one other thing not in this particular passage either, you'll notice at the top. There are others who have attempted to insert into this the absence in some ways of various kinds of good, or rather the absence of certain actions toward those that maybe aren't the best. Well, the Lord didn't say that either. You'll notice it's not merely the absence of not doing what you wish they would have done to you. That's not what Jesus said. He said, all things whatsoever you would that men would do to you, that should do to you, do ye even so to them. No wonder with those things in mind. Notice some of the additional things that the Lord stated in that verse. Verse number 12 closes by saying, For this is the law and the prophets. It's not unusual when a statement like that is found in the words of the New Testament that the Lord is making a quotation or at least a direct reference to some occurrence in the old law of Moses. This is the law and the prophets. And yet if you look into the heart of the Old Testament, I wasn't able to find a direct reference or quotation of that form anywhere. But nonetheless, the principle is there. That appears to be the thrust of what our Savior said. And so, consider these particular discussions. Let me direct you to a scene in Deuteronomy 22. Back in that ancient agricultural society, maybe your neighbor's donkey gets loose and starts wandering through the camp and your neighbor doesn't know about it. Maybe you're not the best of friends with him besides that, so you just would rather not do anything about the donkey. Wouldn't hurt your feelings any if the donkey just ended up lost. The Old Testament said, that's not what you're supposed to do. This brother of yours that has that donkey, you go and you take it back to him, or you hold it and keeps for him. Now notice, there you do to him what you would wish he would do to you. Not only that, the context includes other things, like his clothing. Maybe he's out working and he leaves an element of his clothing and you know about it, Moses said, you take it back to him. Or you, in fact, keep it safely so that when he asks for it, you can provide it to him, you can return it to him. This is the law and the prophets. Not only that one. What about Exodus 23, 4? 
Now that first set of statements in Deuteronomy 22 had to do with a brother, a fellow Israelite. This one heightens the appreciation. The explicit wording of Exodus 23 is an enemy. So what if there's an enemy of yours, someone who has often wished you ill, someone who has behaved in such a fashion you understand that they don't really think a lot of you, but yet his ox or his donkey has gotten loose. Now this would be a perfect time. Well, that rascal has often done me dirty, so I'll just kind of let his ox go free. In fact, I'll even help chase it away if I can. Moses said, that's not what you do. God through Moses said, you in fact recognize the obligation of yours to help return that donkey or that ox to him, even if he is your enemy. Doesn't that sound interesting? Do you suppose that would be challenging for folks of that day? Perhaps one final one. This one might even be the most challenging of all. You can picture the scene in that ancient society where, again, those donkeys often were called upon to carry heavy loads because that's what you had to move heavy things from one place to another. And maybe this donkey, for whatever reason, had stumbled, but it was loaded heavy. It'd be easy to stand by and watch, you, watch your enemy suffer and try to get that donkey up or maybe unload it and then have to load it back. Moses says you help your enemy when his donkey's in that condition. You don't just stand there and laugh at him. You don't stand there and, in fact, turn the other cheek. You provide assistance to that enemy when he's in that predicament. All of that causes us to appreciate there did seem to be statements in the Old Testament asserting the importance and the need to do unto others as you would wish that they would do to you. But maybe in light of all those things, we come near the bottom of that slide and begin to ponder, to challenge ourselves with the application of this to your life and mine. As we turn the slide and come to this, might we ask about the basis upon which perhaps this whole assertion is grounded? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There are passages in both the Old and the New Testament that shed some additional spotlight appreciations, and many of them are certainly in the New Testament. And I would invite us to consider those in this next portion. Doing to others as you would have them do to you. We stated a moment ago that's not a direct quotation from anything in the Old Testament, but its principle seems to be there so much. Doesn't it remind you of Leviticus 19.18? When early in that basic presentation of the law of Moses, God said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now you and I have often noted that as the Bible defines or at least gives appreciation of that word neighbor, it's not merely somebody that lives next door. It's anyone of whom you're able to help. It's anyone to whom you're able to provide some means of encouragement or at least assistance in some form. And yet there in Leviticus 19... Love your neighbor as yourself. So that enemy's donkey or that enemy's ox that was having difficulty, if you were the one in that condition, wouldn't you hope someone else would offer you some assistance? Loving others. That particular approach, of course, you and I find frequently in the Word of God. That understanding that when we look upon the nature of others, we see souls. 
individuals who themselves are eternal spirits and shall stand before the God of heaven in judgment. In Galatians 5.14, Paul quoted that and said, This is the fulfillment of the law. Loving your neighbor as yourself. As you and I build upon that and look one step further, in Romans 13, verses 8 and following, Paul made a beautiful presentation as he gave a commandment, Oh, no man anything but to love one another. And isn't it amazing there that he said no man? He didn't just single out brothers or for that matter, enemies. He said, oh, no man anything. And so isn't it true that as you and I have the desire to fulfill the law of God and to be as He would wish us to be, we too should love others as our neighbors, as ourselves, and in so doing, appreciate that means we do to them as we would wish they would do to us. That isn't all. Look at that Good Samaritan passage in Luke chapter 10. Many have been the considerations you and I have and certainly could give to a passage like that one. Here's an individual who himself was left for half dead. We remember that in his travels he was beaten and robbed. He was in a very, very serious condition. And yet we notice, and perhaps you and I would be quick to say, isn't it his fortunate day? A priest comes walking by. Surely the priest would extend a hand of help, a hand of assistance. This poor man is in a very serious condition. The priest didn't do anything. Did the priest love him? Did the priest do to him what he would have hoped the man would have done to him? That's easy to answer. But again, you would think perhaps his fortunate day, a Levite comes by. Did the Levite, in fact, extend a hand of encouragement and help and assistance? The answer is no. Finally, a Samaritan came by. One who, of course, the Jews looked upon with great disfavor. They considered them very, very impure in many ways. But yet the Samaritan extended that marvelous hand of help and assistance and even went beyond what some might argue was the call of duty. Fact is, as all that ended, Jesus said, which one was neighbor to the man? Finally, the lawyer said, the one showed mercy. And Jesus said, go and do thou likewise. Luke 10, 37. So that was a mandate for that man. And certainly under the banner of the New Testament gospel, that's of course important for you and me too. But to do unto others as we would wish that they would do to us. Maybe in fairness to all those things. That brings us back to Luke's account of this same statement Jesus made. Sometimes there are interesting things in as much as Matthew's version or Mark's version or Luke's version, certainly they're very powerful and inspired. But often by comparing the contexts, new ideas or at least new perspectives can, can appear. Would you notice Luke chapter 6? Various pieces of the Sermon on the Mount, according to Matthew, are found in Luke chapter 6. Beginning in verse 27, Luke records these words, "...but I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other." 
And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. I suppose it's then an interesting thing to notice the context in Luke very much places it in light of the behavior of those that might be our enemies. Those who would in fact wish us rather evil or at least not so good. Jesus said, if you only treat those good who treat you good, what better are you than even the publicans, the sinners, and those recognized as far beneath the dignity of God? It is with that in mind. Look at some of these final comments on this slide. Isn't it a sweet thing to appreciate that God did to us in such a magnificent way? God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, how lowly and lost, how despicable in many ways in that we had violated His will and we turned our back upon Him and yet in His love He sent His Son to die for us that I, a woeful sinner, might be made right in His sight. Think about what God then did for each of us, extending to us that marvelous and beautiful expression of His goodwill, His love toward us. He did to us what surely we would hope if the tables had been turned that we would have done to Him. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The last thought on that slide is this one. We noted earlier how tempting, I suppose, it is to treat others the way they have treated us, to bear ill will or grudges or some other kinds of behavior toward them. And yet, isn't it true that in our discussion of love, loving our neighbor, one very critical definition is given in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not rejoice in what's evil. It doesn't. Isn't it true then in those matters? You can appreciate doing unto others as we would have them do unto us certainly offers its challenges. Let's now consider several explicit applications, things that might be of benefit to you and me. And certainly, I'm sure each of us can think of the avenues of our own life, things we've experienced in our years on this earth. Here are at least a few of them. Why don't we consider first our speech? The scenario is so easily played out, isn't it? In the workplace, you work with diligence and try your best to carry out the duties that your job demands. Somebody else, though, says something about you to the boss. It isn't true. But they cast it in a way to where, quite frankly, they now have advantage over you. They've said something that has etched in the mind of the boss and has given him or her a rather lesser appreciation or respect for either you or your capabilities. Once that becomes known, how easy it is to then talk behind the back of the person who went to the boss and said that about me, despite the fact it's not true. He or she hurt me. Wouldn't it be reasonable? Wouldn't it be fair? Then if at the water cooler 
I besmirch their character. I say besmirching or rather belittling things about them, calling into question various and sundry avenues and aspects of their life. It's easy to imagine it. Scenarios like that can be played out almost inexhaustively. And yet Jesus still says, All things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do you even so unto them. I know what they did to me, but would I want them? Did I want them to do it? Would I want them to do it again? The obvious answer is no. So under the banner of that consideration, I must refrain from speaking at least those kinds of things. Now, there isn't anything in this to refrain from speaking the truth. Maybe if they've acted in some way to hurt or harm the company. Maybe if they've acted in some way to directly hurt or harm definitive matters of whom the boss needs to know, that's different. But to just tear down their character because they did it to us, that's a direct violation of this verse we're studying today. You'll notice on this particular passage, doesn't it remind us again of our Master? The scenario is so easy to envision. Here He is nailed to a cross. He had been put there not because of any sin He'd done, not that He had been a criminal against the state, not because He had been an affront to the legitimacy of the Roman Empire. He was just the opposite. He, in fact, said, Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's. He had upheld every vestige of the right for Rome to rule. But yet they nailed Him to a cross, instigated by the Jews. And yet you notice while there, He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. How easy it would have been for Him to act toward them the same way they had acted to Him, but yet He didn't. He lifted Himself far above that. He acted far more nobly and, of course, far more correctly. One of the most powerful tendencies, I suppose, of the human spirit is to simply treat others the way they have treated us. But Jesus demands that we do better than that. He demands that our character be pulled to a higher zenith and a higher location to where we are in a position to behave toward them the way we, we wish they would have behaved toward us. Perhaps one final thought might be when it comes to our words... Isn't it interesting to think of the impressiveness as well as the demand of verses like Matthew 12, verses 36 and 7? On the day of judgment, it says, we're going to give account of those words spoken idly. If that's true, what about those words spoken with a heart of malice, with a heart of tearing down the character and the well-being of another? If we're going to give account for the words spoken with idleness... Doesn't it stand to reason that we're surely going to give account of the other ones? Doesn't it remind us we must be very cautious and careful about using our language, even in those cases when someone has harmed or hurt us? Let's look at another scenario, though, even as we think about applying it to marriage. Isn't it true that in the home, the one that we love the dearest the person to whom we're the closest on this earth, the one who we're so joyously able to be with so often, and yet after a hard and difficult day, we sometimes might be so quick to respond by saying something that we later wish we hadn't. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
would you want him or her to speak to you that way? Would you want him or her to, in fact, overwhelmingly approach you in that tone of voice or that way? Now we consider even in our marriages to think about doing unto others as we would wish they would do to us. But our speech is but one possibility of application. Look at the next one. What about hidden actions? Many of the times you and I see this as well. Maybe you have felt it and experienced it many times. I think about the athletic world. Here we are supposed to be playing like a team and that person simply is not buying into the team arrangement. He or she wants to be the one with all the glory. And so they butter up the coach and the trainer and everybody else so that they can get what they want. Well, I may not openly say anything bad about them, but I'm just going to secretly and privately hold my grudges. I'm not going to help them any way I don't have to. And I'm just going to keep it all undercover. Is that what the Lord said is okay? Just to hold these hidden secretive grudges to where I'm not going to help them in any way if I don't have to. Seems to me that flies directly in the face of the same passage we just read. Jesus didn't say, don't do what's mean and evil to them. He said, all things whatsoever you would that they would do to you, that's what you do to them. The Lord's statement is much more proactive, isn't it? It's much more positive in its thrust, isn't it? And so it is. That The developments at the bottom of that slide help us see that what the Lord taught in many ways is beautiful, in many ways is challenging. It goes against the grain of what we so often see in the world around us and quite frankly, so often the way that we have tendency to act, I'm, it would seem. We so often want to do to others like they have done. But that just isn't what Jesus taught. As we close that slide and go to the next one, doesn't it remind us that the additional applications could well be many? The next slide brings us to think about another one that's so easy to withhold. That man hurt me. He hurt my family. He overtly said something that has in fact tarnished my reputation. Or perhaps a lady would say, that other person, she has hurt me terribly. So I just won't be very forgiving. Now, may I submit to all of us that that's eternally dangerous. We're not in any way condoning what the other person may have done. They should never act in a way that's hurtful, harmful, in a way that is damaging. But the fact that they did it, what does that say about you and me if we fail to forgive them when they meet the terms of forgiveness? May I invite you to read Matthew chapter 6 with me? All we're going to pick is a couple of verses. But to withhold forgiveness is very serious. Beginning in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 6, the inspired writer said, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your, will your Father forgive your trespasses. Even though this person has acted in such a way that, again, you and I are not condoning what they did. 
But if you and I now behave in such a way that we withhold forgiveness from them when they meet the terms of forgiveness, when they honestly say, I'm sorry, and I very much apologize for what I said and what I did, would you forgive me? You and I are wrong if we withhold that forgiveness or if we say that we'll give it and then don't. Either way, we aren't doing what Jesus said must be done for God to forgive us. Those challenges perhaps lead us to close that first part of that slide by saying, if men repent, Jesus commanded us to forgive them. To think about things this way has us to appreciate this golden rule of Matthew 7, 12 has so much to seriously consider. One last point in the lesson today will be yours. May I submit to you that there seems to be yet another matter that rests behind this golden rule. Isn't it true that in the scenarios and the opportunities we've studied this morning, we've all been in circumstances where someone has treated us in this way, in a way that we don't appreciate, and quite frankly, in a way that wasn't right. But yet, our reaction, our response says much about our Christianity. It says much about our devotion to God. But doesn't it also say something else? It speaks about the capability that's ours to look beyond the past. Quite frankly, there might be some that would say, those Christians have acted toward me in a very hurtful fashion. We can think about, in fact, the matter of church discipline, withdrawing fellowship. Those people withdrew fellowship from me. They did it because they loved you. And they did it because it, they wanted you finally to be saved. They did it because they had enough concern and care for your spiritual well-being. They were able to see past the realities and the attributes you had displayed. They didn't treat you meanly like you treated them. They didn't just besmirch the things of God like you did. They, in fact, looked past the matter of the immediate into the eternal blessedness that they hope you'll finally one day come to appreciate. Isn't it true that those closing thoughts highlight the reality of love often is able to see past the immediate? It doesn't treat others the way they did treat you, but it treats them the way that you wish they would have treated you. And it treats them in that matter of love characteristic of doing what's in that person's best interest. One last thought on that slide is this one. It has to do that love is that defined quality in which it treats others for the highest good of its object, the highest welfare of that which is its subject. All things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. This is the law and the prophets. May I ask, if it was the case, the law and the prophets, that Old Testament law had that principle within it, and we serve a better covenant today, a more perfect one. And yet we find this same principle etched in the New Testament. How vital is it? How significant is it? May you and I strive then to labor to bring ourselves to understand and to apply that which we've studied. This conclusion slide. perhaps finishes our lesson like this. This earth would be so much different if there was a greater understanding and application of the golden rule. 
not only, of course, among individuals in the church, but certainly here, but certainly those worldwide to treat others the way that you wish that they would treat you. That's a very high ethic. May I submit it to each of us for consideration because our Lord said it. As you analyze your life today, and I do, of course, the same for myself, are you in harmony with the law of God? Are you and I serving Him faithfully? Are we living as we should? If not, maybe you've never become a Christian. Maybe to this point you have kept the Master at bay. His invitations have fallen to this point on virtually deaf ears. But maybe you've been motivated and moved by your study of the Word of God to make a change today. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. If though you have become a Christian and you have walked in faithfulness and strength for some time, but as of today, things have developed and matters have happened and your life is not as it ought to be, and you know it. You know it because the Word of God says it. It's not skepticism. It's not just I think so, but you know it. Isn't it true that you know you need to come back to the Master then? Why don't you do it today? Why don't you repent of the sins, confess them before the Heavenly Father, and rest assured then that prayers of faithful brethren falling on the ears of God will lead to that forgiveness. And we'd be honored today to pray to God on your behalf. If we could be of any help to anyone today, we would encourage you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.